0: This is an ABC podcast. I really have an anxiety disorder. You can't put people through, like me, through this. It's too much. I already have so many barriers. Please don't make welfare one of them. That's supposed to be there to help me.
1: Central Queensland woman Sophie Reed singer lives with a congenital bone disease, but she says trying to access the disability support pension is a dehumanising process and she's calling for reform. And for Victorian man Daniel Irwin, gambling started innocently, but transformed into a regular habit over two decades, costing him his job, home and family. Now he wants to help others with the same addiction.
2: A lot of shame with it all. One of my first counsellors that I saw suggested that I should be open to my inner circle of friends, which I didn't agree with at the time, um, but that was the one of the best things I ever did, I was opening up about it, because as a gambler, uh, we're the best liars in the world.
1: I'm Alex Hyman and this is Australia Wide. Residents along the rising Murray River at the towns of Echuca and Moama have been given a slight reprieve, with the river now expected to peak late late Sunday through to Monday before remaining high for a number of days, according to the SES. This has given the exhausted communities, who've been busily sandbagging and building a two-kilometre-long levee, a chance to catch their breath. In Victoria, students from three schools of flood hit Rochester have gone from sandbagging to cleaning up to today, shooting hoops at Bendigo Stadium, reuniting with their classmates for a day of sport, games and fun. It was a day away from the devastation, but hundreds of the students will be unable to return home to Rochester anytime soon. A reporter in central Victoria, Shannon Schubert, spoke to Rochester High School principal, Melissa Gould.
3: Everyone in town is just, is hurting at the moment. So our school had flood water through every building, every inch. We don't have anything that's dry. So our staff have lost access to their resources as well. So this week has been about doing everything we can to check in on our staff, our students, our community, and it has been incredible to watch everybody come together. Teams of teachers travelling from Bendigo every day to support anyone they can. Uh, You drive around the streets of Rochester and there are students everywhere working dragging sandbags, lifting furniture, doing anything they can to help. And there's times when they don't even know who they're helping, they're just there to help. We work together as three schools, so we're, we're treating it as the school community to try and bring all our kids together, just to give them a day-to-day where they get to not see the devastation and not see the pain, just to be kids again. What does your school look like now? Uh, so we've got teams of contractors in there at the moment. Uh, yesterday when I went through... All the flooring's being ripped up, plaster's being cut, our fence lines are all destroyed, our grounds are full of other people's items, our stadium is flooded. It's not a space we even want the kids to see. So I think one of the things that's come out of this is Rochester Primary School and Rochester Secondary share land and we've realised how important it is that we stay together as a school community and and by bringing St Joe's in, it just means that... um, the kids are from Rochester and it doesn't matter which school they go to, they've got support here. From sandbagging to shooting hoops, I imagine it's pretty good to see a smile on their faces. Oh, it's amazing, it's amazing and you know I live in chuka so I have a foot in that door at the moment too and lifting sandbags is exhausting, dragging wet sandbags after the event is horrendous. We had teachers pick up equipment this morning and they've just gone, their arms are, are so sore from the work they've been doing and kids are no different. So to see them finally not be in mud or wet spaces or doing that and just being kids is beautiful,
1: beautiful. That's Rochester High School Principal Melissa Gould speaking there to our reporter in Bendigo, Shannon Schubert. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide. And you are with me Alex Hyman it's great to have your company on this Friday. Sophie Reed Singer has a passion has passion and a doctorate for visual arts but pursuing this career is no longer her life goal. The central Queensland born woman says having to prove her disability to access welfare through Centrelink has been dehumanizing. She's calling for legislative reform and she's now dedicated to help make that change. Erin Semler has this story. Propose the Senate to adjourn. Senator Rice.
4: Deputy President. I was recently contacted by Dr. Sophie Reed Singer, who shared with me the awful experience she had accessing the disability support pension.
5: That's Senator Janet Rice reading Sophie Reed Singer's story to the Senate last month. Doctor Reed Singer is a 26 year old experimental animator and a doctor of visual arts, originally from Emerald in central Queensland. But pursuing
0: art as her career is no longer her life goal. I can make as many empowering artworks as I want for the rest of my life, but until the law has changed, like, I'm, I'm going to continue to be discriminated against. Miss Reed Singer, who
5: lives with disability, has launched an online campaign against the assessment process for the Disability Support Pension.
0: It took my whole adult life for Sendlink to acknowledge my disability and grant me access to the DSP. With all due respect... Back off! My congenital bone disease, spondylo-metaphysical dysplasia, Kozlowski type, does not get bloody cured.
5: Miss Singer moved to Brisbane in 2014 to do a fine arts degree. She sought welfare to live independently and pursue her studies, but says she was ineligible for the DSP for the first seven years of her adult life.
0: I'm so sick of people telling me that I'm not disabled enough, like... When I was 18, I applied to the Disability Support Pension and they rejected me too. And they said, no, it's not severe enough. And I just thought, stop telling me about my capacity. Like, I'm not in the room. The latest Department
5: of Social Services statistics, released in June 2022, show of the 831,000 Australians on JobSeeker, 43% are sick or live with disability. Miss Reid-Singer says the system has been designed to remove people from the DSP rather than support them to access it. I'm
0: depressed because of these assessments. Like, I already have an anxiety disorder. You can't put people through, like me, through this. It's too much. I'm just trying to live my life here. Like, I already have so many barriers. Please don't make welfare one of them. That's supposed to be there to help me.
5: In a statement, a Department of Social Services spokesman says it's reviewing the impairment tables used to assess people and is consulting with disability peak bodies, advocacy groups, medical professionals and people with lived experience of the DSP process.
0: Scoring my disability using an impairment table is dehumanising. It is a hate crime. A grade of 35 points is used to describe my body parts as mildly, moderately and severely disabled.
5: Public consultation on proposed changes to the impairment tables is now open on the department's website. But Natalie Wade, a disability rights advocate and lawyer, says reform of Australia's Social Security Act is overdue.
6: The impact on people with disability when faced with the current social security system and in particular being able to access the disability support pension is, in my view, a violation of their fundamental human rights. It leaves them without basic human needs like access to food, water, shelter, clothing, housing. It leaves people with disability behind uh, in a way that is not consistent. With our expectations of how people in 2022 should be treated or should
5: be living, this experience spurred Miss Reed Singer to base her doctorate on a human rights complaint naming Centrelink as a barrier affecting disabled people. Now it's complete. Miss Reed Singer has moved to Melbourne.
0: I'm going to law school because I want to change the Social Security Act <laughs> because it's just it's rubbish. It's not appropriate. It doesn't support my interests. My lifetime goal is I would like to amend the Disability Discrimination Act to say that disability is an interaction between personal environmental factors, because that's how the UN defines it. At present, Australia does not define disability in any other way than loss or damage or incapacity. Miss Reed Singer says she'll continue
5: to shout until her voice is heard.
0: Until you take my word for it. Until the guidelines for accessing the DSP are made to be equitable and do not make people like me feel worthless.
1: Sophie Reed Singer ending that report by Erin Semler to regional victoria now and the impact of gambling each week more than a million dollars is lost by people gambling on poker machines and that's just in ballarat for daniel Irwin, gambling started as innocent fun but transformed into a regular habit spanning two decades a habit which cost him his job his family his home and hundreds of thousands of dollars now he uses his story to help others struggling with the same addiction ballarat reporter rochelle kirkham has more
7: Dan Irwin was 16 years old when he placed his first bet. As a youngster playing in the senior cricket team, he looked up to the older guys he played with. It seemed innocent enough and completely normal, adding a $20 contribution to the group's bet on the spring racing carnival. What he didn't know at the time was how that bet would turn into a 25-year gambling addiction.
2: That was my introduction. It grew from there. So I got paid reasonably good extra cash to play football. And during my younger years, the binge drinking and gambling just went hand in hand. And never thought for one second that I had a problem because I thought everyone was doing it. I was never good with money, never saved money, never went on really good holidays or anything like that. And that was my life for probably 15 to 20 years.
7: Dan says his binge drinking slowed down as he aged, but the gambling worsened particularly when he retired from football and filled that extra free time with more sports betting.
2: It was bad already and then I became a recluse and yeah, just got way out of control. Didn't spend time with my family, friends I ignored and it was just not a nice person to be around.
7: Soon a new job with a higher wage meant Dan had more money to gamble but it all came to a head when he and his partner decided to buy another home.
2: And the bank said, there's no way with your record they weren't giving you any money. And then it sort of all came out. So uh, within a month, I lost everything. My job, got kicked out of the family home. Yeah, it was a really tough time because you don't speak about it or talk to anyone about it. It was hard for me. It was a lot of shame with it all. One of my first counsellors that I saw suggested that I should be open to my inner circle of friends, which I didn't agree with at the time. Uh, but that was the one of the best things I ever did, was opening up about it. Because as a gambler, uh, we're the best liars in the world.
7: Dan now shares his experience with others, spending time raising awareness among young people at sporting clubs and within regional communities. Dan has gotten to know other reformed gamblers and affected family members through his speaking journey, like Central Victorian Jan, who has also shared her story publicly in Ballarat. Jan is an affected family member who spent 27 years dealing with her husband's gambling addiction. She now speaks about her own process of healing and recovery.
6: I wanted the fairy tale ending. You know, I wanted my husband to stop gambling so that we could be happily ever after. And I chased that dream for years and years and years. But I didn't get it and at the end of it I certainly needed recovery and had been affected.
7: Jan says she and her husband lived a double life, keeping the gambling a secret behind closed doors. The pattern
6: for us went something like this. There'd be gambling, there'd be anger and conflict, then there'd be remorse, then there'd be promises. Then there'd be rescuing and then there'd be more gambling. It was really cyclical and it was
7: destructive. Outwardly, we appeared quite normal. Jan describes one time returning home and in a rage, yelling at her husband while he was in tears. She says that moment was a turning point when she realised her own behaviour was also out of control and she reached out for help. So to actually be able to get
6: the help and be helped and feel connected, it was very comforting. I did realise with the help of the professionals that I too had a role in the gambling addiction. I paid debts and loans and covered for him, always with the hope it might be, oh, maybe this is the last time. He created the crisis and I cleaned up the mess. The biggest hurdle, the biggest lesson in addiction, I had to accept without any buts. I could not control or change the gambling behaviour. The only person I could change was myself.
7: Jen promotes gamblers' help services, including what is offered at CAFs in Ballarat, where counsellors like Sania Goriwala see the devastation gambling causes every day. I see a lot of, and hear, a lot of sadness, a lot of shame, a lot of guilt, a lot of self-criticism.
5: You feel where they're coming from and seeing them struggle between the act in terms of what they have done that they know was wrong and was detrimental to their own lives and others, and also feeling this sense of stuckness. They don't feel like they can do anything about it. And
7: all they know to do at that time is to shame themselves to a point where they sort of take value away from themselves. Sunia, like her colleague John Bradshaw, wants to see the Ballarat community take a more empathetic approach to gambling and see it as a public health issue.
8: We need to recognise when someone who's normally quite talkative and outgoing is becoming withdrawn... Maybe they don't have enough money to go out on a social evening. You know, what, why could that be? Can we open up a conversation and check in with someone and see if they're OK? Planting that seed and, and having those open-based conversations about someone's wellbeing is really, really important when it comes to gambling because when someone feels supported by a friend, you know, in a non-confrontational, safe space, that's when conversations can open
1: up. John Bradshaw there ending that report from Rochelle Kirkham in Ballarat.
5: You're listening to Australia Wide on ABC Radio.
1: To WA's south coast now, where two communities near Esperance are in danger of losing their local ambulances because they don't have the volunteers to staff them. But some say the situation shows why WA needs to change its model for ambulance service delivery and stop being so reliant on volunteers in the regions. Esperance reporter Emily Smith has the story.
4: Robert Dummermouth spends his shifts racing the clock.
9: From a heart attack, you've got four minutes... To uh, major bleeding within half an hour. But yeah, the sooner you can get uh, treatment going and the sooner you can get back to a hospital, the, the better. Uh, works out for everybody concerned.
4: But the volunteer ambulance driver fears hitting those targets will soon become impossible. Conding up on WA's south coast may soon lose its ambulance because there's not enough fellow volunteers to staff it. It would instead be moved to Esperance, adding at least an hour to emergency response times in the region. Mr Dummermouth believes that is an extremely concerning prospect.
9: There's a few old people living around the area, of course. They're always prone to using ambulance for one reason or another. Also holiday periods. We get quite a crowd out here and a whole range of everything there from sort of shark attacks to falling down sand hills to four-wheel drive accidents off-road and motorbike accidents. And also, of course, we're a major farming area with farmers using heavy equipment and big machinery and things and uh, that's always a problem too.
4: St John WA community paramedic Paul Gorn says Nap is not alone in its struggle.
7: It's been an issue probably for the last six months, but it's got progressively worse. And mungling up is also becoming uh, difficult. We've had a few uh, recent new recruits, but a lot of these places get about 12 to 20 jobs a year. And so if you think of an average of one or two a month, but when the job comes in, not everyone's available for it. They may not be able to respond, so we, we need you know a number of people so that we have more chance of filling those jobs when they come in. Unfortunately, with the, the system, we do rely on um, volunteers in remote and rural locations and um, we really do need people to put up their hand at the moment and consider it.
4: But Fiona Scallon, the National Ambulance Coordinator for the United Workers' Union, says WA is unique in how heavily it relies on volunteers to run its ambulances in regional areas. If there's 10,000 volunteers in Western Australia, there'd be 1,000 in Queensland. It it's far exceeds the other models. What do Ooh. other parts of the country do in, in these sorts of circumstances? Look, it's not uniform across the country. Um, there are some places where there
3: are career paramedics located in those kind of environments and those governments have determined that that is, yeah, it, it is an expensive model but they
4: have an obligation to the community and they provide it. So basically people should be paid to be in these places? Yeah, I think so. Or the volunteers
3: who generously give their time to serve their community should be supported in a way that makes it a more attractive option for them. If if they're having difficulty getting people to volunteer to do this kind of thing, then I think there needs to be a whole review on what that looks like for them.
4: An inquiry into the delivery of ambulance services in WA earlier this year echoed her thoughts, finding the continued reliance on volunteers in the regions was not sustainable. The committee recommended the WA Department of Health investigate rolling out more hybrid models, which would mean paying for more staff to work alongside volunteers. Should volunteers be used at all in um, ambulance services?
3: I think there's a place for it, particularly in really remote and less populated areas, but there should always be a sort of safety net of of the
9: qualified professionals there as well.
4: Mr Dummermuth says he certainly enjoys being a volunteer.
9: And it is quite a wonderful feeling, particularly if you have a successful outcome and know very definitely you've saved somebody's life. That gives you a really good feeling inside. It'll keep you going for a couple of weeks.
4: If up hmm. loses its ambulance service, do you think it will make some people more hesitant about living there?
9: It would certainly raise some serious questions, I think. Certainly a lot of folk feel much more comfortable knowing the ambulance is that much closer. You know, I'm 78 in a couple of weeks' time. And uh, there's every chance I'm going to need an ambulance.
1: That's volunteer ambulance driver Robert Dummermouth, ending that report by Emily Smith. And the WA Health Minister was contacted for comment. And finally here on Australia Wide, on a spray-free raspberry farm in Portland, Victoria... Craig and Melissa Woods grow most of their own food, use solar power and collect water in tanks. They also raised a brood of emu chicks but had no idea they would grow to become an integral part of the farm's ecology. And beloved family members, Warrnambool reporter Emily Bisland has the story.
10: Can you hear that strange drum sound? It's actually being made by a Victorian emu the sound comes from somewhere in its neck or its chest and it reverberates out.
8: It's like a frog horn. It a very um, deep sound.
10: This emu is very close to me. Maybe too close.
8: Am I safe here? Yeah, yeah they won't hurt you at all.
10: I am in its paddock uh, very, very on friendly. a spray-free raspberry farm. farm is run by Craig and Melissa Woods. And by raising these emus from chicks as really household pets... The Woodsers have discovered that the emus have a whole host of other behaviours and talents that actually really help out on the farm. Could it be that emus are actually a farmer's friend?
8: Basically, I started this about eight years ago. I used to work as a fitter and turner, so I couldn't do that job anymore. So I had to make my own job to keep myself occupied. And um, we started the raspberry farm. Um, my wife makes all the jams. Uh, we freeze raspberries, do fresh raspberries. Also have black currants, sylvan berries, marion berries. We introduced a few others to their crop. So, but we also have the emus. When the tourists come in, we do a few farm tours and introduce the tourists to the emus. Einstein loves to meet people. He enjoys his cuddles, and uh, people get to sit down and get a selfie with the emu. I'm get phone out. You like the phone, don't you? To demonstrate
10: this trick, Craig encourages Einstein to bend his long dinosaur legs down and he crouches on the ground next to Einstein, who's sitting gracefully now in the grass.
8: What people do is they sit here like this with Einstein.
10: Craig puts his head next to Einstein's head, switches on the selfie camera and... And we get a photo. Takes a shot. That's going straight to Instagram. You like your
9: photos, don't you? (laughs)
8: That looks pretty good, that one. We've also had family portraits, so we've had the whole family sitting around, and I end up as a photographer.
10: But why did you decide to buy the
8: emus? Out of curiosity. They're just a fascinating bird. Everyone said you can't keep them as pets, and I thought you've got to be able to keep them as pets. So next thing I came home with a box of eight emu chicks and had no idea how to raise an emu. So then Einstein become basically the family pet. And my kids grew up with the emus and uh, then we started the raspberry farm, so the emus become part of the raspberry farm, but Einstein himself started to come up to the gate and sit down for the tourists. We didn't train him to do it, he just loved people. And it's just gone on from there. What are
10: the surprising things that you've learnt about how emus are kind of a farmer's friend?
8: Well, we found with the locusts and the grasshoppers and crickets, the black crickets, we get a lot of them here in summer. Those emus are basically like a giant chicken. So they walk across the paddock eating about their body weight a day in grasshoppers and crickets. So a few years ago we had a locust plague come through. So I put three emus into one paddock and I think we might have saved a few other farms because the emus ate all the grasshoppers coming in, the locusts coming through the farm. They just cleaned them up. So Our paddocks look quite good when everyone else's paddocks were running out of grass. Yeah, the berries survived no problem, so we got a crop at the front and down the back paddock. But they also eat everything else that eats the grass, so we got twice as much grass for our cows. What else are
10: they good at killing? Like, what other
8: pests are they good at killing? Oh, they do eat snakes. I have seen Einstein eat snakes a couple of times now, but also foxes. So we haven't lost a chicken since we've had Einstein to a fox. Their toenail on the foot is like a can opener it could really cause damage if it wants but the only time the emu will do that if you corner it and it has to get away but other than that they're just a very curious animal but Einstein would pick on goose when he first came here so goose befriended our mob of cows so wherever the cows go goose goes we didn't realize at first but yeah once you raise the emu chick with certain livestock they'll be part of that mob some people have got them to look after the sheep, of course, because the foxes won't go near the flock of sheep once you've got emus. So that's also saved a lot
1: of their lambs. Yeah. There you go. An emu is basically a giant chicken, he said there. Craig Woods ending that report from Warrnambool reporter Emily Bisland. And that is Australia wide for this week. A big thank you to Maddie for production duties. I'm Alex Hyman. Sinead Mangan will be back with you on Monday. Have a wonderful weekend. Cheerio.